I want to start in John chapter 15 this morning again. We uh, started a series last Sunday morning on steps to answer prayer. I want to, while you're turning there, I want to also remind you of a couple other scriptures. Ephesians 6, 18 says, praying always with all prayer. Other translations say all kinds or all manner of prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance for all saints. So the Bible indicates to us that there are different kinds of prayer. If we um, study it out and separate them, there are seven different kinds of prayer. Also, in James chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray ye one for another that you may be healed. The last part of the verse is really what I want to get to. The effectual fervent prayer of a heart, uh, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The word fervent means heartfelt, but the word effectual means effective. So he's saying the effective, from the heart kind of prayer does a lot of good. Well, if you can pray effectively, then that must mean you can pray ineffectively. Wouldn't that have to be true? Well, I think that's uh, uh, one thing that a lot of the church world stumbles on because we haven't had the teaching on the different kinds of prayer that perhaps we should have. Since there are different kinds of prayer, the Bible indicates to us as well that there are different rules that govern those different types of prayer. For example, this is uh, the, the one example that we always use, uh, or that I always use, and, uh, and I think it's a good example because so much of the church world is ignorant on this fact. And that is when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. Thy will be done. Well, as a result, a lot of Christians, a lot of the body of Christ worldwide, not just in America, but all over the world, a lot of Christians think that Jesus prayed that way all the time and that all of us should pray that way all the time. Meaning, to pray, if it be thy will. But that was only one kind of prayer that Jesus prayed. It's a prayer of consecration and dedication of his life to God. Now, I would certainly agree that it's good for us to consecrate ourselves and dedicate ourselves to God as many times as we need to to remind us and remind God that he's in charge. But Jesus didn't pray every prayer that way. Neither should we. The kind of prayer that we're talking about and covering in this series this, uh, on these Sunday mornings is the prayer that changes things. It's known as the prayer of faith. Well, the Bible says faith begins, or the Bible teaches us, that faith begins where the will of God is known. So you cannot pray the prayer of faith saying, if it be your will. You just can't do it. You can't have faith for something you don't know God wants you to have. It's impossible. So when Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done for you of my Father which is in heaven. He's talking about the prayer of faith. He's talking about a prayer to receive things. He's talking about a prayer that changes things. Verse 8 goes on to say, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is saying God is glorified when we pray the prayer that he identifies in verse 7. God wants you to have answers to your prayer. But notice how many times in John 15, 7, the word you is in there. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. See, the fact of the matter is, in this kind of prayer, this prayer of faith, whether you get answers to your prayers 
depends more on you than it does on God. And the reason for that is because faith comes by hearing the word. It comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's the only way you can have faith. Well, if you're praying God's word, which you would have to if you're praying in faith, if you're praying God's word, you're already praying his will. You don't have to ask if it's your will. You don't have to put that faith-destroying phrase in there, Lord, if it be your will, because that will destroy any seed of faith that's planted. If we're to say, and, I, and again, I think a lot of the church world just lives this way, a lot of the believers around the world seem to have the idea that if God wants you to have something, it's just going to happen. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God doesn't answer prayer based on need. He answers prayer based on faith. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said, God knows what you have need of before you ask him. Well, if God knows you have need of something, why didn't he just do it? If that's the way it works. Obviously, it's not the way it works. God knows what you have need of, but he still expects you to ask him. Now, why does he expect you to ask? Because he wants to answer but you're the one with authority here on the earth. God created man and put him in the Garden of Eden and gave him authority. God never has taken that back. He's not an Indian giver, as we used to say as kids. He didn't give it to, to mankind until he fell and then took it back to himself. Man's always had authority on this earth and always will have authority on this earth until the end of the age. So Jesus is saying... If you abide in me, it's talking about relationship. The prayer of faith is based on relationship. Lester Summerall said something when I was working with Brother Hagen that um, really surprised me. And, and uh, well, it surprised me the way that it came about. There was a group of ministers, well-known ministers. If I had said the names of them, you'd know every one of them. A group of people were in the back of uh, the auditorium in the speaker's room before a, a service one time. Brother Summerall was going to be ministering, and, uh, and this group of uh, ministers started talking about different things and what their faith has brought in and uh, what they believe God for and other good things that God had done in their ministry. And somebody spoke up and started talking about a difficulty that they were having. And Brother Summerall, I don't know if any of you had any acquaintance with him or much exposure to him, but Brother Summerall, especially in the latter years of his life, he was, uh, well, shall we say direct. This guy was a dinosaur. I mean, he was a throwback to days of Abraham, I think. <laughs> and he didn't mix words about anything. And so when they were talking about this stuff and other people were pitching in and saying this, that, and the other, Lester just said to the, out loud to the room, nobody was talking to him. He just spoke out in the middle of the room and said, if I'm having trouble with my faith, I don't examine my faith. I examine my relationship with God. And everyone silently departed the room. <laughs> I like that. And it's certainly scriptural. Jesus said, if you abide in me, he's talking about close fellowship. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, notice that's just as important a criteria as abiding in him. See, a lot of the church wants to talk about abiding in him. Oh, yes, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. I've been saved all my life, whatever the case might be. 
But you don't hear a lot of people talking about the word that way. You don't hear a lot of the church world talking about the word concerning the promises God made and the taking hold of those promises by faith. But Jesus said they were on equal footing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will. Now, why is that a criteria or why is that necessary to asking for what you want? We all know what we want. We want whatever satisfies our feelings at the moment. Why is the word abiding in us such a big issue? Because the word of God is the will of God. You can't know what God wills for you apart from the word. Think about what that means. That means you can't fellowship with God outside of his word. There are so many people that are going through lives hurt and bitter and and, uh, upset about things because stuff didn't work out the way that they thought that it would or they prayed about certain things and didn't get an answer. God didn't make a change in their situations. And so now they're mad at God and they think that something's wrong with prayer. But if you just look at the Word, find out what the Word says, then you can be assured of an answer every time according to Jesus if he told us the truth. Now, a lot of people want to pray for things outside the Word. Brother Hagin used to tell the story, and it's an extreme one, about a guy that showed up at the uh, pastor's house, the parsonage, where Brother Hagin was holding a meeting. And he came in and, and uh, said that he wanted the pastor, Brother Hagin, to pray for him about something. And so the pastor said, well, what is it? What do you need to pray for? And he said, well, I noticed Brother so-and-so's wife on the other side of the auditorium. I want you to pray that God would give me his wife. I don't know what his plan was to do with his own wife, but <laughs> Brother Hagin just said, well, I'll let the pastor handle this. And he went into the other room. Well, that's an extreme example. I wouldn't expect that a lot of people are praying that. I certainly hope not anyway. But a lot of people want to go outside the word when it comes to their prayers or their desires or whatever. But Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done. That means that presupposes that you know what God's will is on the subject. Now turn with me over to to, uh, Mark chapter 11. We started last week with steps to answered prayer. Brother Hagin, and these are directly from Brother Hagin's notes. I'm not going to try to claim some kind of insight into this that I don't have. Brother Hagin divided these things into seven steps. I group them into four steps. But these steps, if followed faithfully, will bring an answer every time. They'll bring an answer every time. Now, the reason we can say that with confidence and know that we're telling the truth is because of what we just saw in John 15, 7. Your prayers being answered, this type of prayer, this prayer of faith being answered, has more to do with you and depends more on you than it does God. So if you will follow these steps faithfully, be diligent to follow these steps, you can get an answer every time, and the answer is always going to be yes. I grew up hearing that God sometimes says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. Well, that would be impossible if you're praying prayers based on the Word of God. 
God's never going to say no to his prayer, to, to his word, I'm sorry. He's never going to say no to his word. And he's never going to say wait, because today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now, that doesn't mean you'll get instant results, but you can make instant contact. You can make instant contact with God to bring about the change that you desire. Now, I want you to notice in Mark chapter 11, earlier part of the chapter talks about Jesus seeing a fig tree. It was a time of year for it to have figs, but it didn't. It had leaves. This was a type of tree that when it produced the leaves, it produced the figs too. So the leaves were a sign that there should be figs on the tree. But Jesus gets there and all it has is leaves and no fruit. So Jesus speaks to the tree. He says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard them. Next morning they passed by that way again and they saw the fig tree. And it had changed drastically. It had dried up from the roots. It wasn't just starting to lose leaves. It had dried up from the roots. Something had impacted that tree in such a way that it no longer looked fruitful. Before, it had disguised itself to look fruitful with the leaves, but now everything's gone. It was dried up from the roots, and Peter calling to remembrance said, Jesus, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Jesus said in verse 22, have faith in God. Other translations say have the faith of God. And from that, we coined the term the God kind of faith. Because what would the faith of God be if not the God kind of faith? And the Bible tells us that that God kind of faith is the faith that created the worlds. God believed that what he said would come to pass. And you know, folks, that's why the word is so specific and the word is so critical. Because anything God says comes to pass. If God spoke evil of you, it would come to pass. Because he's God. That's why he does it. And that's why the Bible is so specific in telling us that God never changes. What he does for one, he'll do for all. What he has done for one, he has done for all. And his word is always sure because it's his word. Now keep that in mind. God's word is sure. God's word is true because it's his word. So no matter what it looks like in your life, if your circumstances don't line up with God's word, all you have to do is shift your attention and your faith over to his word and things will change. And that's what Jesus does here. Now, Jesus didn't have to get out the scrolls and look up scripture to find out, can I curse a fig tree? He knew that he had dominion over the fig tree. He knew also that God never made any tree or any other thing to be unfruitful in this world. And that includes you and me. God wants you to be fruitful. Jesus tells us that. God expects you to be fruitful. God expects you to have everything that the Bible says that Jesus has done for us. God expects us to have dominion in every respect through his word in our lives. So you don't have to pray and see if God wants you to exercise dominion over unfruitful circumstances in your life. You don't have to pray, and Jesus never did pray, to see if God wanted somebody to be healed. He never did pray to see if God wanted somebody blessed. He never took, for all the, the times where the church world has through the years said that sometimes God wants to teach you th something through sickness, and that's why he won't heal. That never was the case in Jesus' ministry. 
And he ministered to thousands of people. He never once had to stop and say, well, I'm going to have to pray about this because maybe God gave you this sickness to learn something. He never hesitated. People that came to him for healing, he ministered to them instantly. He was always moved with compassion toward their circumstances. And he honored their faith by ministering healing and ministering the power of God to them. Well, if Jesus was that sure about God because he abided in him or abode in him, I don't know how you'd say that. I don't use the word abide much. But if Jesus was abiding in him, which of course he was, and the word of God was abiding in him too, abiding in Jesus, which it was, then he always knew what God wanted to do. He didn't even pray in the Garden of Gethsemane about what the word of God was or the will of God was. He's just saying, Father, if there's some other way to bring mankind back into our family without the cross, let's do that. But if this is it, if this is the only way it can be accomplished, I surrender myself to your will. Your will be done. And that's what the prayer of consecration and dedication is all about. It's about presenting yourself as willing to do whatever God has for you, even though it might not be pleasant. Now, Jesus lived that way. We know that as soon as he was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape as a dove, the Bible says the Holy Ghost led him into the wilderness. Wilderness places are not exactly comfortable. He led him into the wilderness and Jesus fasted for 40 days. The King James seems to imply that God led him into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil, but that was not the purpose of the wilderness. It was the result, the end result. We see that Satan came to him after he had fasted for 40 days and started bringing temptations to him. And he answered every one of them the same way by quoting the word. Well, if that worked for Jesus, wouldn't that work for us? Amen. And if that was the pattern or the example that the Bible tells us about Jesus when he encountered the devil, shouldn't it be the same thing that we follow? Amen. Bless God it is. But Jesus went into the wilderness to spend time alone with God, not to be tempted of the devil. I think it's important for us to realize every time you try to draw closer to God, the devil's going to show up. But that's not anything to be concerned about. You've got the same word to deal with him that Jesus did. So Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. He didn't shy away from that. He didn't shy away from that 40 days of fasting. He submitted himself to the will of God. So the Garden of Gethsemane is not the only time he submitted himself to God's will, is it? But that's not the way... The way that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane is not the way that he ministered healing to the sick. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have faith in God or have the God kind of faith, the faith of God. And then he describes what that is. He says, for whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. Here's the qualifier shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Well, if he's talking about doubting in his heart, then he must be talking about believing with the heart. But shall believe from his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24, Jesus explains, goes a little bit further. He could have stopped right at the end of verse 23 and explained completely and sufficiently to Peter and the apostles about why the fig tree died. 
Because Jesus didn't pray about the fig tree. Jesus didn't say, oh, God, look at this fig tree. Look at what a problem it's causing me. Jesus just cursed the tree. He acted on what he describes in verse 23 of Mark chapter 11. He spoke to the tree. Jesus said it will work on trees. It'll work, like, work on problems that look as big as a mountain. I really don't believe Jesus is, is telling us that we can rearrange the topography of the earth. Why would we need to? I'm sure God was smart enough to put the mountains where they needed to be. But he's talking about issues and circumstances and problems that we encounter in life. And he said, here's how you fix them. Here's how you change things. You speak to the mountain. But then he goes further in verse 24 to explain how this thing called faith, this faith of God or the God kind of faith, works in prayer. Now, if Jesus is telling us the rules that govern the prayer of faith, which is exactly what he's doing, then he must be familiar with them himself. Otherwise, how could he share them with us? And if he's familiar with them, then that must mean he's used it. He's used this prayer of faith to change things. He's used this principle of faith in prayer to make changes in his own life. So he tells us how the, how the prayer of faith operates, this prayer that changes things, this prayer that you can always be assured of an answer. He said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, what things soever you desire, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, the things you desire, and you shall have them. Then he's, faith, he's um, faithful enough to us in verse 25 to show us what we need to do to make sure our attitude is right and we're in the right place of walking in love. He said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have all against any. That your heavenly Father may forgive you your trespasses too. He's faithful to show us that unforgiveness is the number one hindrance to the prayer of faith working in our lives. But back to verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, because this principle of faith in verse 23 is true and is the way it works. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now folks, this is where people either win or lose the faith fight. We talked about the first step last Sunday morning. And that is decide what you want from God. Because Jesus just says whatever you desire. John chapter 15 verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will. And it shall be done unto you. So step number one is find things, or decide what you want from God. And then the, the subheading under that is find scripture that promises you what you want. Find scripture that promises you. Now remember, this is the prayer of faith. It's the prayer that changes things. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Romans 10, 17, Paul said, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If you don't have the word of God on the subject, at least in principle, if you don't have the word of God on the subject, you don't have any foundation of faith to pray. And I think so often what we do is people rush into prayer and say, oh, this is what I want. This is what I need. God do this for me. And they don't have a foundation of faith underneath them because they don't know what the Word says. So many times when people come to me and they want me to agree with them in prayer, 
I'll ask them what scripture they're standing on. And oftentimes they say, well, not anything in particular. They don't have a specific scripture that they're praying uh, or basing their prayer on. So they don't have any faith to exercise. They want me many times to tell them what the Bible says so that then they can pray in faith. But it doesn't work that way. You're going to have to get what God's word says about you and your situation down on the inside of you. So when you decide what you want from God in prayer, find those scriptures that promise you what you want and make them such a part of your heart that you can be able to use them against the devil when he comes. Because he will come and test your faith. There is one and only one thing, main thing, that the devil's after in your life. Now, I know a lot of times we think that he's got a special assignment against us because our situation seems more difficult than others. But there's only one thing he's after, and that's the Word of God. The one thing that the devil will do is try to make you doubt God. The one thing that the devil will always do, and that is try to make you doubt his Word. That's what the serpent said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Has God said? Well, that's not what he means. This dying part, you're not really going to die. He attacks the word. He attacks the word. We may think and we may feel like the attack is against us personally. But the reality is, God couldn't, or the devil couldn't care less about you personally. He's just after the word that you try to put in your heart. His sole purpose is to try to make you doubt God's word. Now think about that for a second, folks. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, everything changed. They became body conscious. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. I believe they must have been clothed with the glory of God before they fell. Something changed to cause their attention to be drawn to their body. But they became subject to the circumstances and surroundings that they were in. Before that time, everything they did was a function of their spirit. They were made in the image and the likeness of God. So everything they said was from the information they had received from God. The Bible talks about uh, God talking to Abraham. Not Abraham. Who's in the garden? Adam. God talks about Adam walking with God in the cool of the day. What'd they walk around doing? What would you do if you were walking with the creator of the universe in the afternoon? He's got to be answering questions for Adam. He's got to be explaining things to Adam. Otherwise, what are they walking around for? God doesn't need to see anything. He knows what was here. He made it. So what are they doing walking through the garden? I have to imagine and assume that God's pointing out things and saying, see that tree right there? That's a peach tree. See that tree right there? That's an apricot tree. He's got to be telling him things about the earth. He's got to be telling him things about the creation that he made for him. And he's got to be telling him things about the exercise of his authority. That's what you talk to your kids about if you were putting them in a position of authority, isn't it? Well, of course. And so God is explaining to Adam how things work. Well, how did things work? Adam spoke and it happened. See, that's the reason why the book of Genesis, chapter 1 of Genesis, has 10 different times in those 30-some-odd chapters, the 30-some-odd verses. There are 10 times where it tells us, and God said, and then whatever he said came to pass. 
Well, why didn't it tell us just once? And God said, earth be, and everything was like we see it now. Why does the Bible, and God's behind this, God's the one that's telling Moses about how it worked and getting him to write it down. God had to be showing this is the way you exercise authority and dominion in the earth. It's through your words. What you say will come to pass. What you say will come to pass. And so that has to be the way that Adam and Eve are operating in the earth before the fall. It has to be. They were created. They were made in the image and likeness of God. They acted like God on the earth. Adam and Eve were the sons of God. That's gender neutral. Eve was just as much a child of God as Adam was. But they're operating as sons of God here on the earth. They're operating as the gods of this world. Under God's supervision and under his approval. So what was the mode or the way that they operated? Through their words. Through their words. So when things fall, when they fell and things changed, what was the impact on them? There are some verses in, John, in James chapter 3 that have really stood out to me here over the last several years. James is talking about the power of the tongue. He talks about how that ships are controlled with a little rudder, and that's symbolic of the tongue. He talks about horses, no matter how big or how strong they are, can be controlled by putting a bit in their mouths, literally by applying pressure to the tongue. And then he talks about what a disaster the tongue of the unsaved and unregenerated man is. He says it's full of deadly poison. It's deadly. He says it's set on fire of the course of nature, or sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire by hell. Well, that's not the way God created the tongue. He's not saying that's how Adam's tongue was. So we can certainly conclude that when the fall of man took place in the Garden of Eden. Man, mankind, Adam is representative of mankind along with Eve, lost controls of their tongue. Before that time, before the fall, everything they said was from their heart. Everything they said was a product of what they believed and what they knew on the inside of them as told to them by God. So we could say it this way. Everything that they said was the word of God from within them. But when they fell, everything changed. They lost control of their tongue. What I mean by that is they lost control of their tongue being controlled and dictated, directed by their spirits. Now their tongue is talking according to their flesh. Now their tongue is speaking according to what they see and feel. That's the change that occurred. Now they didn't lose their dominion on the earth. I used to think that Satan gained dominion on the earth from Adam. Well, there were certain things that he gained dominion over, but Adam did not lose, neither mankind did they lose the authority that God had given them over the earth. But they've lost the source of doing good in the earth, which was from their spirits that were alive unto God. Because now that they died, they spiritually died, they were separated from God. They can't speak from their spirits anymore. Or if they do speak from their spirits, they're speaking from a, dead, a spiritually dead source. Jesus tells us that a good tree 
produces good fruit, and an evil tree produces evil fruit. Well, after the fall, Adam and Eve would be the evil tree. They can't produce good. They can't produce good. But notice Jesus talking about this principle of faith. Notice how important the words are. Notice how important the words of your mouth are. Verse 22 again, Jesus said, have, God, have the God kind of faith or have the faith of God. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Notice the first thing he talks about is words. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart. From his heart shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So notice what Jesus is telling us. When we put these things together that we've been talking about with Adam and Eve, along with what Jesus told us about the principle of faith, Jesus is telling us, you can produce good from your heart. You can produce good from your heart. See, folks, that's why the devil has to deceive us. That's why the devil has to trick us into saying things contrary to God's word is because man still has authority on the earth. He never lost it. So Satan's one and only one means of operation, the way he operates, is through deception. He operates through deception to get us to use or misuse our authority for evil rather than the good that we were put here to do. Can you see that? See, if the devil could just make everything happen in your life that he tells you is going to happen, or that we know who wants to, he wants to happen against us, then he'd just do it. How many times have we fought sickness and disease and the devil is telling us he's going to kill us? Why doesn't he? How is it people are able to overcome that? Because man has authority, not the devil. See, if the devil was really able to kill you every time he says he's going to, what's holding him back? He has to get you to buy into his power in order to use it against you. So Jesus says, because man was made in the image and the likeness of God, Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, you cannot be effective in prayer if you don't know you have authority. No prayer that you pray, none of the different kinds of prayer that you pray will work worth a flip if you don't know you have authority on the earth. It's the one thing God said he put man here to do, have dominion over the earth. So Jesus goes on in verse 24 of Mark chapter 11, telling us about this principle of prayer, principle of faith utilized in prayer. He said, therefore I say unto you, because faith works by speaking from your heart, Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you might get a few. When you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. So in step one, we decided what we wanted from God. We found scriptures that promised us those things, and we've made them a part of our heart by meditating, speaking them over and over and over again into our own spirits to prepare to use them against the devil when he attacks. Now we're ready to pray. But folks, please understand, 
If you're not ready for battle before you pray, you've lost already. And that battle that we're talking about is the same thing that we see identified when Jesus was tempted of the devil. Jesus was ready for the devil whenever he came. How was he ready? He knew the word. He was prepared with the word. He was prepared to use the word when the devil came. And every time the devil tempted him with something, he said, it is written. He speaks the word. He speaks God's word, which is exactly what we're going to have to do too. So we prepared ourselves for battle. That brings us to step number two, and that is ask God for the things that you want and believe you receive them when you pray. Now that sounds so simple. And in one sense it is when we gain information and knowledge about how things work. But it's the dividing line between people that have and people that have not. Turn with me over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, Jesus appears to his disciples. He breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Ghost. And he talks to them about salvation or the remission of sins. Well, let me just read it in verse 22. And when he had said this, he said to them, peace be unto you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, receive you the Holy Ghost. Well, they must have gotten something or else Jesus tricked them. He said, receive the Holy Ghost. Now, what happened? That's the point where the disciples were born again. Notice the context of receiving the Holy Ghost. He said, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, he's certainly not giving them the ability to decide, to decide who gets saved and who doesn't. That's available to everybody. The blood of Jesus is available to everybody, not those who the disciples say should have it. But the important point to see here is that when Jesus says receive the Holy Ghost, since we know there are two works of the Holy Ghost, one is salvation, one, that, one is bringing us into the family of God, being made new or being made new creatures in Him. And the other is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which equips us for service. So when Jesus says receive the Holy Ghost, He tells us which one of those two it is. He says receive the Holy Ghost in connection with remittance of sins. He's talking about salvation. These same guys Jesus is going to tell just a few days later to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high when they were filled with the Holy Ghost. But the church starts right here when he says receive the Holy Ghost. But notice the next thing that happens, verse 24. It says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them... Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, the hole that the nails had made when he was nailed to the cross, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side. Notice the phrase, I will not believe. Notice he does not say he cannot believe. He says he won't believe. He's talking about his will. He's not talking about the truth. The truth is Jesus is alive. But he says flat out, if I can't see him and feel him, I won't believe. I won't believe. So what is his faith based on? What is his believing based on? What he can see and feel. 
Thankfully, on his part, after eight days, verse 26, after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, faithless. The Bible says Thomas's position of I will not believe is being faithless. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Notice there's no blessing attached to Thomas's kind of faith. There's no blessing attached. There's no commendation from Jesus to Thomas for the kind of faith that he decided he would have or the basis for faith that he decided for himself. Now, this is where a lot of people make a mistake with Mark chapter 11 and verse 24. Again, Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. A lot of people are trying to have it before they believe. That's what Thomas did. Thomas wants to have it. He wants to have physical evidence. He wants to have what his eyes show him to be the foundation for what he believes. And a lot of Christians, well-meaning Christians, people that love God with all their heart, a lot of people live this way. They didn't live that way when it came to getting saved. They couldn't have, or else they never would have been saved. They were willing to accept the testimony of Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins and being raised from the dead in order for themselves to be saved. And it worked. Nobody has ever been saved any other way than faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Well, how does God give us faith to be saved? We hear the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We hear the word of Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead and having paid the price for our sins. We accept that. We choose to accept that, not because we see very few people have ever been saved by seeing Jesus. And if that's what somebody was holding out for, they have no assurance that they'll ever have it. But Thomas says just flat out, and there's no question in my mind, but this story was given to us by John to kind of close the loop to show us what real faith is. It's not what Thomas did. Jesus called Thomas's kind of faith as being faithless. But contrast that with believing you receive. Contrast that with Romans chapter 4. Notice what God said about, the, the word says to us about Abraham and his basis for faith. We'll start in verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now that's the operation of faith from God's standpoint, calling things that be not as though they were. Then that must mean that faith, the prayer of faith, is the prayer of calling things that be not as though they are. The prayer of faith is the prayer that changes things. 
The prayer of faith is the prayer that believes when it receives, believes it receives when it prays. The prayer of faith is calling, the prayer of calling things that be not as though they are. That's what Abraham did. He followed God. He imitated God in that respect. Verse 18, who against hope, that means without any natural circumstance to hope in. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. What did Abraham do? Abraham believed according to what God had spoken. God had said, see the stars in the sky, so shall thy seed be. That's what Abraham believed in. Abraham believed in the Bible says he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed according to what was spoken. Thomas would not. Would not. Not could not. Thomas would not believe. Well, a lot of people are trying to get the blessings of Abraham by using the kind of faith that Thomas had. And it won't work. It won't work. It just will not work. You've got to believe you receive beforehand. And you shall have. Now, turn back with me to Mark chapter 11. I want you to see some things. Some of this, it seems to me, a lot of people miss. Mark chapter 11, notice verse 24 again. Jesus is talking about the prayer of faith, this same faith that will bring results every time, the, the fulfilling of John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says that what you want, what you decide you want to ask for from God, what you pray for in faith exists in two different realms. Exists in two different realms. Read verse 24 again carefully. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, whatever that is, if it's eating for your body, if it's finances for your, to pay your bills, whatever it is, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Notice the believe you receive and the shall have. Well, which one's right? They're both right. Jesus said, if you'll believe that you receive when you pray, then you'll have. A lot of people are trying to believe that they receive when they have. I could give you story after story, but I'll tag on to one that we gave you last week about the pastor that had Brother Hagin into his church some 12 years, 14 years, something like that, almost once a year. He had diabetes and had, had had diabetes for 30 years from the time he was 39 to, verse, uh, to uh, age 69. He had had diabetes for 30 years and finally came to the point where he realized where the word of God was unveiled to him. And he saw that what he was doing was trying to believe that he was healed after his blood sugar was fixed or stable. But what he needed to do what the Bible told him to do was start believing that he was healed while his insulin was still unbalanced, while he still needed the insulin shots. And so every day, once he came to that realization, every day he'd give himself the shot of insulin, he'd measure his blood sugar content, and give himself the insulin and say, I believe I received my healing. And every day the devil was right there saying, well, you've gone to line, you know you don't have it. 
But remember, step one was putting the word of God in your heart and being ready to use it against the devil when he comes. So he was. He was prepared. Took him a long time to get there to understand. But he was prepared for the devil's attack. And so he had answered, that's right, Mr. Devil, I don't have it. I don't have it. But Jesus said, if I believed I received it, I would have it. So I believe I received my healing. Well, he wound up totally healed. It was kind of a fluke thing that caused him to, to come to the realization of his healing. He was driving in his truck and a bee got in the cab and somehow or another flying around it got behind his glasses, which is not the place I'd think you'd want to be to be. And so he started slapping at everything, wound up knocking his glasses off. And in all the commotion, he ran up over the curb and hit a tree. Well, he was all right. He just knocked the wind out of himself and bruised his chest a little bit. But he got to the doctor, small town, so he got to the doctor. And the doctor is doing some tests, trying to make sure he's okay, and then asked him, are you still taking your insulin? He said, yeah. He said, well, let's hold off on that for a few days. He never took another insulin shot. So what he did brought what he wanted. He wanted to be healed of his diabetes. How did he get healed of his diabetes? He believed he received his healing when he prayed. Now, he spent some 30 years not doing that. But then when he got a hold of the truth of the word, he started confessing. He started saying, because words carry power. Words are the exercise of your authority. He started speaking from his heart based on what the Bible says. I believe I received my healing. And God made sure that he had it. Now, when was he healed? Well, he was healed 2,000 years ago when Jesus took sickness upon his back. But when did it become his? When he started saying, I believe I receive it. Amen. What happened when he started saying, I believe I received it? Then the word started working in his body until it came to the point where he had it in physical reality. So the Bible tells us, Paul told us the gospel Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto everyone that believes. The word is the power of God. We know Jesus talked about the word of God being like a seed. Everything you want, whether it's healing for your body, whether it's finances, whether it's peace in your life, everything you want is contained in the seed of God's word. Now this is something I think a lot of people struggle with and it's something the devil really tried to uh, hammer me on and that is so often we think that our prayers are going to make God move to do something and there might be a few instances that we could come up with that would follow that or fit in that pattern but let's talk about something that we can all relate to let's talk about healing for the physical body for a minute when we pray for healing when we pray the prayer of faith for healing, Jesus doesn't do anything that hasn't already been done. See, Jesus isn't going back to the cross and spend another few seconds on there to make sure it's good for you. And by the same token, Jesus doesn't have a warehouse in heaven with healing on the shelf. So that when we pray, he goes to the warehouse pulls off healing from the shelf, 
and gets it to you. That's not the way it works. It's not ever the way it works. The healing of our physical bodies has already been accomplished. We know that has to be true because the same thing, the same principle of faith works for salvation, the new birth experience, as it works for anything else. When somebody cries out to God for Jesus to save them, according to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, if we believe Jesus paid the price for our sins and now has been risen from the dead, and if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord, we shall be saved. So your salvation is available to you before you ever claim it. Your salvation has already been paid for. The blood of Jesus already paid for every sin you or I or anybody else has ever committed. It was already paid for before we ever reached out to take hold of it. The only way we knew to reach out and take hold of it is because the Word of God tells us what it is, tells us what Jesus did for us, and tells us that if we will confess Him as Lord, use our words from our hearts to make Jesus our Lord, He becomes our Lord and Savior. So you're the one that exercises your authority to take hold of the salvation that Jesus paid for. We know that, right? Jesus doesn't have to do anything for anybody because they were worse than he ever expected somebody to be. Salvation has been obtained. It's been provided. Well, healing is a part of salvation according to Isaiah 53. The same verse that says Jesus was wounded for our infirmities he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. The same scripture that tells us Jesus paid for sins tells us he paid for sickness and disease. So nothing else has to be done ever. Else has to be done from heaven's side for healing to be obtained. So that means healing exists for every one of us. It's unseen, but it exists. I want to go real slow on this because I want to make sure you get this. Everything that Jesus paid for exists. It may not appear to be the case in your life or in mine, but it exists because Jesus paid for it. Now, Jesus is the one that tells us that we can bring that existing healing or salvation or financial provision we can bring that existing blessing of God into reality. We can go from the unseen where it exists to being seen in the, in the to be seen in the physical realm. We can bring that to pass. God doesn't bring that to pass. See, if God was the one that was doing it, why would he do it quickly for some people and not so quickly for others? And that's one of the ways the devil wants to attack you. The devil wants to make you think God's not playing fair with you. Look at old sister so-and-so over there. She got healed almost instantly. And you know she's not nearly as good a Christian as you are. <laughs> and other such things. Because the devil wants to make you doubt God's word. Because God's word says that healing has already been paid for. God's word says provision has already been made. So what's the issue? The issue is very simply planting the seed of his word. 
Because that's what brings the unseen realities, the unseen blessings that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood into the physical realm. It's speaking the word. It's the seed of God's word planted in our lives. How do we plant it in our lives? Well, that pastor that had diabetes planted it in his life by saying, I believe I receive my healing now. He went from saying, I believe God will heal me someday to saying, I believe I receive my healing now. And it took about three years. But he had it in physical reality because he held fast to his confession. Now, folks, remember the baseline on this. Man was given authority in the earth. Man was given authority in the earth. So it's what you say that counts. It's whether or not you say you're healed that counts. I'd like for my words to be able to bring healing to everybody in our church. But I don't have authority over you. I don't have authority over your life. I don't have authority over your will. If I had authority over people's wills, there's a lot of people I'd choose to get saved. We're reminded daily from news reports of all the people that need to be saved. Amen. <laughs> but we don't decide that, do we? We don't determine that. Everybody determines what they'll have for themselves. So that's why the devil tries to affect your words. That's why he wants your words to be based on what you see and feel. Because if he can keep you talking about what you see and feel, then he can ensure that your tongue is set on fire of the course of hell instead of set on fire from heaven. The tongue can be a fire whether positively or negatively. See, there's a lot of times we use fire for a real positive thing. I've got a fireplace in my house. We don't need it because of the weather, but we like it. And so we light it. We use it. It's beneficial for us. But fire can get out of control and burn your house down. It's not the fire's problem. It's not the fire's cause. We don't try to ban fires. So your words can either be a positive or a negative in your life. Your words will be either a positive or a negative in your life. But everything you want from God, everything you will ever have a desire from God to have, has already been provided. We simply take hold of it with the words of our mouth. We gain information about what we can take hold of from the Word of God. But if we put that Word of God into our spirits, make that Word of God part of us, who we really are, speak the Word of God, and hold fast our confession of faith, Jesus said nothing was impossible. And that's what I want you to get to. I want you to come to the understanding that anything you believe for is possible. So many times we get stuck and think that things are impossible to us because we're looking for God to do them. Did you notice in verse 24 of Mark chapter 11? Let me read it again. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Did you notice it doesn't even say, and God will do it for you? Yeah. 
It, indicate, it makes no indication whatsoever that God will take action. Now that makes sense if you understand that Jesus has already done the work and we already have been given authority. What does God need to do? What is necessary for him to do? The reason Jesus is seated at the right hand of God is because he's finished his work. If Jesus was still responsible for getting healing to you and me, or financial blessing or anything else that he provided for us through his crucifixion and resurrection, he'd never have a moment to sit. He'd be running back and forth doing stuff for you and doing stuff for me. Shoot, I'd keep him busy half the time myself. But that's not how it works. It doesn't work by God doing something for you. It works because God did something for you already. And we have the opportunity, the privilege of finding out what he's done in his word. Taking hold of it with our hearts. Speaking that word into our spirits. And releasing our authority and our dominion here on the earth through our words. And Jesus said you'd have it. If Jesus told us the truth, then whatever you pray for, believing you receive, when you pray, you will have. You will have. You know what I, I think God would be pleased to see? I believe that God would be pleased to see the church, those of us that have been saved for many, 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 many years, to stop acting like children looking for God to do any and every little thing for them. And instead to utilize their authority. That's what I believe would make God's heart smile. In other words, for us as children of God, sons and daughters of God, to stand up and take hold of what Jesus has already done. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that one of the key elements to growing up and maturing in God is to speak the truth in love. Well, what's the truth? God's word is truth. God's word is truth. The more we speak God's word, the more we act on what God says in his word, the more we do what his word tells us to do, then the more and more we'll grow up in him. If we're still in second grade stuff looking for God to do things for us, how can he use us to reach other people? Reaching other people, now I don't mean this in the most literal sense, but in a general sense, reaching other people is best done by people that have gotten to a place themselves where they can be a help. You know that's true. So the more we grow in God, the more we experience, as Paul said, add experience to your faith. King James says virtue, but it means experience. Add experience to your faith, then we can help other people stay strong and steady when it looks like it's going against them too. Amen? One of the greatest honors, one of the greatest privileges we can have is to believe God over time. And see his word come to pass. I've said this many times. 
I don't know who, who to credit it to, but somebody said, I want to learn faith from people with scars. Experience. Through tough places and tough times. Well, how are we going to gain that experience if we don't learn to accept things that the Bible says are true to really be true and to speak them in our own lives and to keep that seed of the word planted until it produces a harvest? What's your break point? A month? Six months? A year? Ten years? What's the point where you say, well, I'm going to give up on this because it hadn't happened by now? We're all tempted to give up. What's your break point? What was Jesus' break point? The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, it says that faithfulness was the girdle of Jesus' reigns. In other words, Jesus' faithfulness determined the boundaries to which he would go with God. And that's what the Garden of Gethsemane prayer is all about. He's saying, I'll take you all the way to the cross, Father. I'll stick with you. If that's the only way we can do this, then so be it. What's our break point? We shouldn't have one, folks. If we're convinced of the truth of the word, that whatever we believe we receive, we will have then holding fast the confession of our faith should never be an issue. It should be just the way we live. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? The just shall live by speaking the word. If Jesus was an example of living by faith, he spoke the word in every situation he encountered. Shouldn't that be an example for us? I don't know about you, but I've determined I don't have a break point. I don't have a point where I'll quit saying what the Bible says. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, look how long it's been for you. Yeah, but look how many years I've got under my belt already. I'm not worse off because things have been slow. I'm stronger now than I've ever been. And not only that, but I've got some physical evidence to look to. I don't put my faith in it, but I'm not going to deny it either. True children of God shouldn't have a break point. True children of God should not have a point where they let go. And I believe this is what Jesus was amazed at with the centurion. You remember in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. And uh, the centurion says, there's no need for that. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority and I have people that I tell to go and do things and they do it. And Jesus said, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, what does that imply? That implies to me that Jesus expected to find that in Israel. Because Israel was the ones that had the example of Abraham, who believed according to that which was spoken. But the centurion was one of the very few that Jesus talked about having great faith. Well, if he was able to have great faith in his day without even having the life of God in him, what kind of faith should we have?
So second, the second step, if you want to get your prayers answered, your second step is very simple. After you've found the Word of God that covers your case, put it into your heart, prepared yourself to use it against the devil when he attacks. Step two is very simple. Ask God for the things that you want and believe that you receive them when you pray. Believe that you receive them when you pray. Believe that you receive them when you pray. The devil always wants to get you looking at time. But the only time that the Bible talks about for us concerning the prayer of faith is to believe that we receive when we pray. In the time that we pray. Not based on circumstance, not based on what we see, not based on what we feel, but based only on the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to walk in faith. We thank you, Father, that since your word is true, we can declare that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we're healed. We know your word, Father. We know that your word is truth. It's not just true. It is truth. And so we stand strong upon your word. Father, no matter how long things take, we hold fast to your promise. No matter what happens around us, whether things look good or bad, whether things look positive or negative, we believe your word. We believe we receive. And we thank you, Father, that the word of God working in our lives and in our bodies will cause us to have our healing. Thank you that our faith is giving substance to what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together.